Welcome to Rick's Ramblings. This is episode four on maintaining illusions. And we're looking right now at the uh, illusion of increasing property value. And we're going to pick up where we took off or left off in episode three. And that is looking at the king. And this is a uh, <clears throat> where we start to get interesting in terms of what the founding fathers were up against when the time came for them to come up with a way to deal with the free man. Because until 1776, such a thing in actuality didn't really exist, more so than not. And, uh, and so this is what was really unique in terms of what was going on in the so-called New World. And so as we were noticing, I think I mentioned it before, and maybe even the Davy Crockett part, but the thing is that only the king had dominion over land. He was the only one that could hold land. You could have, uh, you know, you could be a village person, you know, in the village, a villain or the like, or you could hold a title of some kind, a duke or a, you know, some kind of fiefdom. But these were all granted by the king. He was the only one that had what they call a loyal title, which essentially means that there was no one higher than them, than our Lord, that had title to the land. And of course, we've already recognized that it's, it, uh, it's the Lord's footstool. So uh, the king has really no uh, ownership in the sense that he is a steward, more so than not, for our Lord. And, uh, and this was somewhat elaborated not in that way as far as the stewardship of the Lord, but in terms of the kingship being a stewardship of the Lord, anyway. But what it means to be a king was quite elaborately uh, displayed by Sir James Fraser's book, The Golden Bough. And uh, he went to great lengths to document and literally went around the world to almost every continent and, you know, uh, gathering these stories about kingship is what it came down to. And the story that was the, the emblem of all of that was the Golden Bough. And it's uh, what do you call the symbol of, uh, well, it's mistletoe that is of a, a golden color that grows in the tree of knowledge. And that's the picture that, uh, that he found more than once. And stories in abundance that all pointed in the same general direction. But the bottom line was, like I mentioned before, and like others have before me, the king is 
responsible. That is the bottom line. When, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, as they say, uh, he was the one. And, and it was a kind of a, uh, well, he got the blame or he got the credit. That didn't seem to matter. Whatever happened, it was his fault or it was by virtue of his capability. One of the two. And so that was one of the reasons kings became somewhat unglued when things weren't going well, because obviously they could end up being, uh, you know, finding the end of their realm or the end of their reign. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, you know, summarized in that one and proclamation that they had when transfer transitioning from the old king to the new king, you know, you know, hail, hail, the king is dead, long live the king. And that that tells the story as far as what's going on. And it's, when you're the new king, you've got a pretty good idea what's going to happen to you if you can't make things work. And so that is uh, the, the thing, you know, as far as, well, so you see, that's interesting. So if we're all like kings, if we all have a loyal title to our domain that we are occupying and possessing and, and protecting, then uh, how is it that we're in debt? How come I owe the bank for my car? I owe the bank for my house, uh, for my boat. You know, this, this doesn't make sense because there's, you know, if, as we've seen, you know, the king, he can't, he can't be in debt in terms of his honor and his status. It's just not done. And it turns out that this is totally applicable to the freeman. You, you do not go into debt. You're, that's, you know, <laughs> no, don't do it. So we got to wonder about this. As far as a, because the founding fathers were very much concerned about how they were going to take care of these uh, you know, new freemen. You know, they had to make sure that, that they didn't get into debt. And so... What they have, what I call the debt protection clause, and, and you know, it's right in Article One, you know, Section Ten, right at right at the beginning. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender of payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder ex post facto law or law impairing the obligation of contracts or grant any title of nobility. Now, that's a lot of stuff when you start counting them and what that means. But the one that is of interest to us is the one about gold and silver and tender and payment of debts. And... The other one is emit bills of credit. So you've, you've got to look at this and see, hmm, 
Why is it that you can uh, be in debt now, but you couldn't be in debt back then? I mean, what changed? Or did anything change? You know, something had to be changed in order for this to happen. Because, for one thing, you know, this no state shall be able to emit bills of credit. Well, what is a bill of credit? Turns out, that's the legal term for fiat currency. And so you have to ask, if the Congress was given the responsibility of maintaining the uh, money, they they had to, you know the coin. They had to make sure that that the uh, coin of the land remained constant. You know, regulate the value thereof, and fix the standards of weights and measures. Well, you see, the economic value is a really difficult thing to measure, and so it really makes a big difference if you have a, a constant unit of measure that you can rely on and it doesn't doesn't change from month to month day to day or year to year and and oddly enough this is something that will keep you from going into debt <laughs> and you're just going well jays i uh couldn't couldn't quite see how that would matter in a way you know, I mean, what the heck? That uh, you're going to spend more money than you make, whether it's gold or or whatever, you know. And uh, and the thing is that if if you're in a in a situation where where you cannot buy anything unless you use money, I mean, whose money are you going to use when you go to buy something? Now that that's what the, the founding fathers finally figured out. You have to use your own. You you know because you know you don't want to borrow. A free man doesn't borrow money, and and a free man doesn't lend money. He's a king. He has the status of a king. He is responsible. He might give you some money. But that's, you know, that's not totally uh, a given, so to speak. So you shouldn't really have any debt. And the thing that protects it is this thing of, what do you call, having a unit of value that is constant. And... Uh, and of course, then the other thing that we'll get into later is the fact that it's a, they didn't want the states to impair the law of contract or impair the right of contract. And, uh, and this is because of, you know, something that we'll, we'll get into later when we start talking about what the free man had to do in order to to maintain his status, you know, that's, that's what's after, you know, that's one of the things that comes after we address the uh, illusions. And uh, so anyway, what we find out is that 
you know, debt is being an impairment of status and that there's essentially three types of debt. And, you know, one of them in the primary one is what you would call substantive debt. And then there's what could be called service debt. And then there's what you might say is obligatory debt or obligation, debt by obligation. And uh, the substantive has to do with, the, you know, what they call chattel goods, you know, commodities, uh, anything of substance that you exchange substance for, which is to say money. So that's a substantive debt. Service debt has to do with somebody who has performed a service for your benefit. And that could be anything, you know, from a haircut to saving your life. And it is such that you have, you know, some obligatory feelings in, to return the favor in some way. You know, and it could be, you know, to compensate them with, you know, money or the like. I mean, it's, uh, so that's the way you take care of a, of a service debt. The third debt is the one of obligation. And this is done with contract. And this is the one that is probably the snake in the grass, so to speak, because it is one that is not, I mean, you know, a substantive debt and a service debt are both discreet. You know, you, you take care of them in the moment and, you know, you get the haircut, you pay for it and so on. I mean, it's, you know, you get the pound of nuts and you pay for them. It's done. An, obligate, an obligation is, a, is something that you have to perform. And so it's really more quantified by the unit of measure of debt or of value. And so that's where the money is used to quantify your obligation. And so that obligation can be almost anything as far as it goes. Anything that you agree to is becomes obligatory. And so this is the one that's really that you, you have to be the most wary of because it it's uh and it's even more so when the situation becomes one of the difference between the republic and the democracy, as we will eventually see. And so, you know, that's how is it, you know, now that we are supposedly free men, and yet we're, we not only are individually in debt, but we have also something that is called the national debt. And, and this is where we start following the money because obviously they've had to change the law in order to accommodate this change in the money you know, from 1913 on. But they did it slowly like we went over before. It was until 1933 that they'd actually 
completed the whole process in terms of going from one law to the next. And, and the difference in the two laws, you know, the, the law of the republic and the law of what we call the democracy, is that the dollar of money is used as a payment of debt. And that seems, okay, well, that's obvious. But the dollar of democracy is a Federal Reserve note. You see, and initially it was a silver certificate. You know, before 1933, it was called a silver certificate. And there were even still silver certificates in circulation. I mean, up until, geez, into the 60s, I think. But this, again, it was the part of the, the slow transition. They do this very slowly so people don't read the dollar bill. And so, and they're a lot lighter and they're foldable and all this other stuff as compared to silver and gold. And, hey, you know, people, if you make it convenient, that's, that's where they go. But the difference was that when all of the silver certificates were gone and all of the gold certificates were taken out of circulation, you know, finally, because that's what they did. They just let them wear out and replace them with Federal Reserve notes. And I, think, I believe you also noticed that at one time there was $10,000 bills and $500 bills and $1,000 bills and $100 bills, you know, and today you can't get anything over 100. Now, that's a whole other inquiry, but it's just something for you to ponder on. You know, what's the utility of that for you, you know, does that make life better for you? Or does it make it better for the banker? This is, or for the federal government. That's what you have to look at. I mean, I was over in Switzerland so a friend, and we were went to the druggist, and he had to buy some odd thing that wasn't much more than, I don't know, it's Swiss francs. And it was like four or five Swiss francs. All he had on him at the time was a, a note for 500 Swiss francs. And he gave that to the druggist, and the druggist gave him change, and we walked out. Now, you try, you, if you even try to buy anything at a minute mart, and you give them a $100 bill, they're almost ready to call the police. So you can see that this, this change that was brought about by the change in the money, but that wasn't all that was changed because something else happened when, you know, what was it, uh, you know, prior to the money changing and becoming what it is today, there was another change that we have to go back and look at when we start looking at the status. And the difference is that payment of debt is taken care of under the, um, what do they call it, negotiable instruments law. Because that has to do with 
substance. But when you buy something with a dollar of script, or dollars denominated in Federal Reserve notes, you don't pay for that item. You don't pay your debt. You instead, you discharge it. And this is under the Uniform Commercial Code, which is different. It's not under the common law, which is the negotiable instruments law was, you see. And so they made this transition from one, from the republic form of law into the de democracy form of law. And there's no announcements. You take United States history in your junior year of high school, and there's no chapter titled The Transition from Payment of Debt to Discharge of Debt. Not a single word. And yet, this makes a big difference. Because when you pay for something, it is yours. You have full right and title to whatever it is because you paid for it. But when you discharge thing, you don't See, everything that you buy with Federal Reserve notes is what you get is what's called beneficial use of whatever it is. But the legal interest in that item has been hypothecated. You see, and that was one of the reasons, that's one of the questions on the voter, you know, you have to know what hypothecation is. And we'll probably have to take a look at that in a minute here, or just you know, to touch on it now, because hypothecation plays a big part in the fact that you only get to beneficial use, you know, that none of the none of the property that you have today truly and totally belongs to you. You only get beneficial use, which means that you can go out and get a pair of shoes and wear them out, and that's it. You know, they're, in a certain sense, they're yours and have all of the aspects of being yours, but the actual legal interest in those shoes has been used to fund what's called the national debt. And that's where they get it, you see. And so now you can see the connection between the type of money that's being used and the fact that if, if everything that is in the economy and the, and the whole nation is being hypothecated, including the land, you, you can see that you can't maintain your, your status. So that's why we have to address what's going on with the status. And uh, so the one of the, you know, and that's the other thing that happened too. And when I mentioned before about the changes that took place and the depression and so on. There, there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that this was intentional. And I, I don't know, it's, it's also 
somewhat, uh, oh, what do you, well, conjecture. It's all circumstantial evidence, but it still has this element of, you know, this, this, you know, there's just, <laughs> when, you know, the, when you're, you're, when the value, what happened, of course, in the Depression was that all of these richer people got richer. They acquired more land and more cash and more capital, and the poorer people got poorer. And then they just continued to do so until even today. And so that this is the the thing that, that makes makes it uh, what to call circumstantial evidence. And of course, you go and talk to a banker or any of these guys, and they're going to poo-poo left and right because they can't have that. You know, they can't have uh, everybody knowing just how this really works. And the fact that, that you don't really have, you know, it doesn't really belong to you, even though it appears to be. You know, that's the illusion of property, or not only real property, but, you know, the actual property that you have, your chattel property and, and everything, you know, and even to a certain extent, your own, which is to say, your uh, intellectual property. You know, there's a... Really, you know, that's a that's a real question as far as that goes. And so this brings up the thing about well, you know, again when we go back to Ben Franklin's talk, and uh, we're having to look at that thing of the between monarchy and a republic, and uh, so that's where we're going to have to cut this loose. As far as it goes, because as a, we get into some more of the, uh, well, what what constitutes a, a monarchy and, and how does it fit in the scheme of things as far as a democracy is concerned and and how do they relate to each other. And that's, that's what we're going to have to start with on the next episode. So we'll be talking to you then.